Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 2nd, 2018. On this week's show, LeBron. Lakers? LeBron? Lakers? LeBron! Our colleague, Ben Mathis-Lilly, will join us, and we will LeBron together. Sports Illustrated's Luis Miguel Echegaray will be here to talk about Brazil's win over Mexico and other World Cup matters. And Emily Bazelon of Slate's Political Gab Fest will be here to discuss the case of Luke Heimlich, the Oregon State baseball star who has gone undrafted by major league teams after it came out that he'd pled guilty to a sex crime as a juvenile. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio this week is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Made uh, your itinerary easier. You don't have to worry about watching Iceland and the World Cup. It must ease your mind. It has a little bit. And if like Russia makes it to the semifinals, it'll ease it even more if we're like, you know, walking on a glacier and I I can't watch. (laughs) We'll get to that in a second. Let's start with LeBron James. On Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, LeBron's agency Clutch Sports Group announced in a short press release that very curiously did not have any hyphens, that LeBron James, four-time NBA MVP, three-time NBA Finals MVP, etc., had agreed to a four-year, $154 million contract with the Los Angeles Lakers. Four years, $154 million. Although James said goodbye to Cleveland and Cavaliers fans in an Instagram story, he has made no other comment and apparently has left the country Maybe he's going to film Le Decision in a boys and girls club somewhere in France. Uh, but in the king's absence, it's left to us peons to make sense of this move, which is at once totally understandable. Good franchise, young talent. He's got houses in L.A., entertainment industry, good opportunities for the kids. And it's also but it's also totally insane. And that LeBron is now on the goddamn Lakers and also every great player in the entire NBA, except for maybe Giannis is now in the Western Conference. Joining us now to discuss is Ben Mathis Lilly, who writes about the news for Slate, and by virtue of his uh, having looked at a basketball before, is a leading contender to be named the MVP of the Eastern Conference this year. Welcome, Ben. uh, Thank you. I'm I'm feeling a lot of offers right now. Um, (laughs) You and Joakim Noah, I think, are the only only players uh, who've ever been on a first team all nba team did you tweet an, on the did you, east did you tweet an emoji after midnight um yeah i did i mean people are are trying to figure out what i meant by the uh you know the hot dog followed by the magician's hat but mm-hmm. uh, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna explain it i have like been tying myself into knots trying to reckon with this just because the scope of lebron's career is so vast at this point and this decision not to be like ridiculous but like in sports terms it's like cataclysmic um but the place i guess i want to start is just how weird it is that lebron is going to be on the lakers ben you know when he went to the cavaliers it's not like 
there was much in that franchise. It's not like, wow, he's going to Craig Elo's team. It's like, there wasn't that that much for him to kind of unseat. And then on the Heat, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous now, but there were questions for the first year, like, is this Dwayne Wade's team? Is it LeBron's team? But again, there wasn't that much like franchise history. But the Lakers are kind of like the quintessence of the NBA. He's going to a franchise that we could list like 10 extremely like famous and great players. Um, And he is, you know, has chosen to kind of cast his lot with this franchise for, you know, given that it's four years, probably the rest of his career, Ben. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I Lee Jenkins from Sports Illustrated, who's who's got good connections with LeBron, um, posted a story about about this decision. Um, And the uh, one of the one of the things that that stuck out from that story for me um, related to what you're saying is is Magic Johnson. Um, You know, I I think maybe people like us don't think uh, too much about Magic Johnson when it comes to the the Lakers, uh, you know, because like you're saying, there's so much else. There's so much else going on in L.A. and with the history of that franchise. But uh, Jenkins' story made sense to me. It says, you know, who who in this in the entire universe can understand what LeBron goes through on a daily basis and what he wants to do with his life, not just his basketball career, but his life. And Magic Johnson is one of those people, maybe one of, you know, two or three people. Uh, and so I think that that Magic, having gone through this kind of, uh, you know, career, entertainment connections, business aspirations, uh, it, make, it makes it make a little more sense. Why, why would LeBron want to go to a team with which at this point now is, is him and a lot of young guys who are, who are pretty good and maybe going to be great, but maybe not. Um, and I think the magic, uh, being there as kind of a guide and a, and a, you know, and a colleague is, is, uh, makes sense to me. Yeah. I, I agree with that, especially when you look at not just magic's business aspirations, but more specifically his sports business aspirations. I mean, magic is a part owner of two franchises, right? I mean, this is an enormous platform and an enormous opportunity for, for LeBron. I don't think that LeBron has a lot to learn per se from magic Johnson. He's he's pretty much already an established, successful business person with with efforts in entertainment and media um, and other businesses. And it's not like you know LeBron James needs to go sit at the foot of a business person to learn what to do after his career ends. I think he's got it pretty much well scoped out. But so so I, I tend to view this move as a personal one. I mean, yeah, there's the Los Angeles aspect and the celebrity and the ability for him to to become more of an instant figure and an instant power player in media and entertainment. But there's also the family aspect. If he's going to go somewhere to finish his career, yeah, he's going to go somewhere where he can um, be a star on a on a on a traditional established franchise where he can basically pull the strings in terms of personnel and. As important, I think, where he feels like his family is also going to be set up. Uh, One of his kids is going into eighth grade, and he is a pretty good basketball player. I think the opportunities for him to play at a high school where his dad can not only watch him and be there, but he'll get good coaching. And, you know, I think the opportunity for him to play at a high school where he'll not only get good coaching and his father can be there to shepherd his career without being an asshole like LeVar Ball are pretty good in L.A., there's probably a roster spot open at Chino Hills if uh, if Bronny is interested. I mean, I think with the magic thing, there's like a respect level and he's a peer for LeBron. And it's 
just value over um, replacement Dan Gilbert. It's right. like <laughs> the fact that he's right. in that seat is like hugely significant because of how few black owners there are in professional sports and how few people with LeBron's particular story and biography have ascended to the place that Magic Johnson has ascended and, you know, both on the court and right. off I the mean, court. It's really just Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, isn't it? I think that's right. Um, and I think just to pick up on your point, Stefan, that, you know, Kevin Arnovitz was, um, I think, making a, a smart point um, the other day and saying that LeBron's legacy more than anything else is going to be around self-determination. And, you know, when you look, when we look back at his career and it's already like so kind of long and uh, it's had so many twists and turns that it's hard to like grapple with it all at once. But the one thing that's connected everything is that when LeBron has made decisions one, two, and three, he has chosen to do what he wanted to do at that time without regard for, you know, for sports tropes and the typical thinking around what you have to do or what you're supposed to do um, if you want to, you know, follow the kind of stations of the cross of the like typical sports career. Certainly um, LeBron's ability or or kind of innovation in, in leveraging his own, uh, you know, his own stature and his own desirability as a player um, is is going to be a, a huge part of his legacy. And it's and it's and it's really already I mean, you can already see it's changed the way the NBA works. But it also brings up kind of a potential pitfall here, which is that LeBron has kind of made himself into a quasi general manager uh, in his, you know, in his later years in the league. Um, he he was close to a lot of the players the Cavaliers brought in. Sometimes he, he publicly urged them to sign certain guys. Uh, but the players that he picked were not great in Cleveland. Um you know, and then and then two of the guys that they're bringing in in Los Angeles already, uh, according to reports, are JaVale McGee and Lance Stevenson, two guys that that have played LeBron personally played him tough. JaVale in the most recent finals gave mm-hmm. him LeBron some trouble. Uh, Lance, obviously, there's a whole history there of of Stevenson being kind of like the pest uh, who can kind of you know at least hopes to hassle LeBron into having a bad game, um, and that is that's kind of the classic former player general manager problem, right? Is you pick guys who remind you of players that that were good when you played or in some cases literally those same guys but at this point in their career they're they're too old to be to be useful they're kind of over the hill um so you're saying you should not sign james jones to come uh, well i mean you know i made a list of these guys i mean james jones jeff green kyle corver uh tristan thompson is a little younger but but also at this point has has a pretty bad contract that lebron urged them shaquille o'neal uh, right, you know these guys. I mean, Dwayne Wade last year, right. um, Kendrick Perkins having a spot on the on the bench in the Cavaliers, you know. And, and so I think that's that's going to be a concern when we're talking about his legacy. You know, obviously his legacy will be affected by whether he wins or not, and and if he's really going to be pushing them to bring in these kind of over the hill dudes who who he's been in the trenches with, um, you know, maybe that's a problem, and maybe it's a problem if, if Magic is going to indulge him in that because. That's Magic's perspective, too. Well, what we don't know, though, is what else Los Angeles might do here. I mean, this is the beginning of free agency. Um, It's certainly possible that some of these younger players, and I don't think anyone on that roster is probably off limits to being traded for an established superstar, that could still happen. If it doesn't, though, I do think we have to wonder whether there is something in LeBron's um, psyche 
that likes the challenge of being surrounded by inferior players the way he does <laughs> this year and propelling them to unexpected, unpredicted, unpredictable heights. I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I don't want to think that's the case. Okay. But after this past season, you know, maybe he relishes the challenge and he some some part of his subconscious likes the frustration of dragging inferior <laughs> players on his back. You guys are both uh, bringing some in- incredibly strange takes. I like it. <laughs> makes it more it makes it more interesting. Like the objection to it also signing... gives him a plausible excuse when when the, when there's failure. The all right, I'll I'll deal with you in a second. The <laughs> first the guy the guy who mentioned Javale and and Lance Stevenson like to object to that um, at this moment just seems a little bit absurd given that the way to construct a roster in the NBA if you're like have one of the best teams is to just get veteran dudes to fill out the team on minimum contracts. Like the Warriors have done that. I don't think anybody is like sure criticizing the Warriors for winning a championship with JaVale McGee and Nick Young. Um, but I think the the primary thing here is, as Stefan said, we have no idea what this roster is going to look like this year or next year or in 2020. And Kevin Pelton has made a really interesting argument. I mean, we haven't said his name yet, but the guy who's like kind of hanging over all this is Kawhi Leonard. Mm-hmm. And right. Kawhi wants to play in L.A. Um, he has said, I think, privately, and it's been reported that he will sign with LA um, in 2019 when he's eligible for free agency. So the question is, are the Spurs going to try to hold on to him and work some like Popovich magic to convince him to stay? Are they going to trade him to LA now? Are they going to trade him to Philly or somewhere else? To get Kev- him out of the West. Um, so Kev- what Kevin Pelton has argued is that it would make sense for the Lakers to like play this year. LeBron's on a four-year deal. Play this year with Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Kyle Kuzma, Josh Hart, the like young talent, Mm -hmm. see what they get. And then just like sign Kawhi next year rather than like trading away all those guys and weakening your team. And I'm going to endorse that (laughs) argument on the belief that LeBron is so secure also in who he is and his legacy and his ability to at least have a respectable season and make the playoffs in the West this year that he is patient enough to, to do that. And if LeBron's thinking is, I'm here for four years, that could be the end of my career. I want by the end of that time to have created a championship caliber team, then taking this year and preparing to do that makes a lot of longer term sense. Yeah. And I, the one, I mean, certainly my, my take is obliterated if, if they end up bringing in Kawhi, who is, who is a great player in his prime. Um, and I also should say, Lakers I, obliterate Mathis <laughs> Lilly's take. <laughs> uh, I should also say that they did sign, um, Kentavious Caldwell Pope, uh, yep. to another kind of, who is the exact kind of guy that, that probably LeBron should want to be playing with. He's going to be 25 next year. He's, he doesn't hog the ball. He can shoot three pointers. He's 38% last year, I think. He's a reputation as a great defender. So and they've signed all these guys, JaVale, Lance Stevenson, KCP, all to one year deals. Right. Which right. means basically, you guys might be gone in 2019, and essentially it tells us nothing about the long-term future of this roster. Right. I mean, if if if, if JaVale, you know, mouths off, um, they can cut him. <laughs> you know, I mean, they can just, they can just, they can, you know, they can, they can send him out. So, uh, sure, sure. I, um, you know, I, that's, there's, there's definitely still the potential for, for a great team, a great team long-term to be built here. There's so much to cover here. I want to make sure we hit a couple other points. Um in Cleveland, just based on what I've seen, the response, um, 
people seem to be like, thanks, LeBron. Like, no, like certainly not the hard feelings um, from from 2010. Um, and people don't seem to be holding it against him that he said in 2014 that he wanted to end his career in Cleveland and that piece um, in Sports Illustrated. Our, our colleague Allison Benedict was saying this morning that like looking at the headlines in the Cleveland paper, she was at like, basically the tone was like, we suck and like, thank you for even mm-hmm. gracing us with your presence yeah, for, that's, for this that, many isn't years. That, isn't that the death part of the five stages? Which is I think where <laughs> Cleveland is with LeBron right now. But um, again, Stefan, this seems to me like LeBron has like even succeeded in like training fans in Cleveland <laughs> to think this is how players operate in the NBA. Or now. players should operate in the NBA now. I mean, you mentioned that legacy of agency. And if LeBron's message to to, to to current and future players is nothing more than you should go where you are more comfortable and you can take the best deal, then that is a huge win for his career. I mean, he is you know the the, the only draw, the only downside to all of that is that LeBron has been forced to operate at the peak of his powers in a system that massively undervalues who he is as a player and how much financial value he brings to whoever he plays for. Yeah, I think that's really important to note. And he's like made all of the moves that you could possibly make under the collective bargaining agreement to kind of take control of his own situation and to maximize his value and what he wants to, you know, wants to do. That being said, he was, you know, he was drafted to Cleveland. He ended up playing there for 11 years. years. Like even for the player who has like the most agency over his entire kind of career, there's still limits on what you can do. I think one, one other piece of this is that Cleveland fans saw J.R. Smith and Jordan Clarkson try to play basketball. <laughs> um, they had to watch it like the rest of us, uh, which which could maybe kind of color their um, their understanding of why LeBron would would have to leave at this point. So Jordan Clarkson and J.R. Smith have been left behind in the Eastern Conference, along with all of the lesser players in the NBA. Yeah. Um, the Cavs are going to be really bad, and that will kind of abet their rebuilding process just as it did when LeBron left the first time and they drafted Kyrie Irving with the number one pick. Um, and but Anthony they, Bennett. Oh yeah. I mean that, that helped them get Kevin Love as part of that deal. It was all part, all part of the plan. Um, but uh, there was a lot of like uh, meme potential and how this is the greatest day in Toronto fran- uh, franchise history. <laughs> I believe that was Jason Concepcion who, Made that point. Um, the Celtics and Sixers are are obviously happy to have LeBron out of the East. But um, you know, Ben, do you feel like this creates a long term problem for the NBA that like needs to be addressed by the commissioner? Because all claims that like it's cyclical are just not true when it comes to the <laughs> right. NBA. Like if it if it is cyclical, like it's a long ass cycle. And so like right. what should be done about it, if anything? I mean, are you you're referring to the kind of the suggestion that that playoff seating, um, you know, teams just be seated in the playoffs based on their quality and not based on on conference? To yeah, I mean, more? one a couple. Of, yeah, that's a a good point. So a couple possibilities that have been tossed around are still have eight 
playoff teams from the East and eight from the West, just seed them based on record. So one through 16. The other possibility would be just have no conferences at all, just given that air travel is a thing that exists now um, <laughs> um, and just put the best 16 teams in the playoffs, irrespective of where their cities happen to be located on the map. Yeah, I mean, you know, and then your, your other option, I think, is to make the East Coast warmer, right? Uh, I, that's that's like about all this you do. Well, that's I mean, happening. But, so, <laughs> but I mean, I guess part of this part of this is is the the sheer putridity of the Knicks and Nets, right? I mean, if players want to be somewhere like Los Angeles, the place like that on the East Coast is New York City, and and both of those teams, well, perhaps showing some signs of getting it long term, you know, after many years of failure, where. Um, what I mean, Brooklyn, Brooklyn is 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 setting itself up to be good in five years. The Knicks could be good in five years. If but of those course, reports last week that Jim Dolan is actually considering selling the Knicks on the Rangers proved to be true. Yeah, exactly. So right, but but no, Paul George and LeBron James are are not going to are you know f- maybe will be good in five years is is not going to cut it for re- recruiting a top free agent. So so I mean that's that's obviously a big part of the problem. But I mean, I think I think if you look, you know, that that stat about about how many all NBA first team players are in the West, all of them, um, <laughs> you know, it does. You mentioned Giannis, but it also, you know, I mean, there's also Joel Embiid and, and Jason Tatum. I mean, and, and there's a possibility ben that will be traded out there. Ben Simmons. I mean, there there are guys who who I think, you know, if you looked at Boston in the playoffs, I don't think you're you're you know you know I don't think anyone's saying those guys are going to get rolled by the Western Conference for the next ten years. Uh, same with Philadelphia. Um, so I, you know, I'm not sure it's going to be a complete disaster, but yes, obviously, right now, um, the the balance is way, 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 right. way. So out what of do that. you? What what we're looking at is potentially the Lakers finishing seventh or eighth in the West, right. Right. Um, with LeBron James. Well, um, I, it just depends on who they who they sure. get for the team for the team. If but the team were what it is right now, since Ben refused to answer the question, Stefan, what <laughs> should what should the NBA do? I think the NBA should recede. I mean, there is going to be an argument among owners that the first round of playoffs. Um, being potentially East Coast, West Coast is a, a hardship on players, even though the NBA staggers games much more than during the regular season, which of course makes sense because they've already played 80 plus games. Um, you're still going to get pushback against the proposition that Boston might have to play the Clippers in the first round of the playoffs. I mean, that is a lot of travel for three rounds, um, to, or four rounds to go through. Um, in terms of seeding them one to sixteen, then you'll get pushback from Milwaukee and Atlanta and all of the teams in the East that would finish fifth to eighth that would be denied playoff money from just being in you know the first and second rounds of the playoffs in the East. Yeah, I mean there will certainly be pushback to any plan that that much is clear that you know a lot of uh, there's going to be a huge constituency of owners that will not want to do this, and so the question is whether Adam Silver will. Try to push something on yeah. on owners. I mean, where there's no way you could get unanimity on it. But obviously, like you know, the their owners in the West who are going to be unhappy with the current system. So oh, you put you like ridiculed my modified <laughs> promotion relegation proposal from a couple of years ago on this podcast. I mean, but it's now great it is as, looking like it makes a shitload of sense. It's great as fan fiction. I mean, go, you know, go for it. I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. It makes sense imagining. where you have two divisions and four teams from the bottom division make the playoffs and 12 from the top division make the playoffs and they promote and relegate. Um, that's where the NBA is right now. There really is. There really are two tiers of teams. All right. Um, I think that just given the scope 
and breadth and magnitude of this topic. I want to give each of us like one more crack at saying something we didn't get to cover yet. And I think um, my uh, little mini, mini LeBron afterball here is that it's going to be like interesting to see um, how the West Coastification of the league kind of plays out with media coverage because all these games starting at 1030 at night in the East, like I certainly wasn't watching as much warriors as I would have the last few years if the games started earlier. And there's always this, there's this perpetual complaint about how teams on the West coast don't get as much attention. And like, this is going to be the ultimate test of that, right? Because the only players that anyone wants to watch are out West and the Lakers are going to be on TV all the damn time. And I just, I'm going to be curious to see how it affects my own sleep and NBA consumption habits, because, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know. I think this is resolvable between the networks and the league. I mean, more 6 PM starts on the West coast would, would, would go a long way to, to ensuring that you get, the East Coast numbers that you need for TNT and ESPN. And screw the LA people complaining that they can't get there because of traffic, because it's all about whether I can go to sleep before midnight. What is your, uh, what is your additional thought you want to share, Ben? Uh, well, my position on the, uh, on the late game issue has, I, you know, I said, I think I said this on Twitter as a, uh, has remained consistent, which is as someone whose wife goes to sleep, uh, at, you know, at about 1030, uh, leaving me to watch basketball after that time. I love, I love this. Uh, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great development for my schedule. Um, but uh, I guess the thing I wanted to, to, to add in, I think is, um, you know, the thing I'm really excited to see in the, in the next few months and then in the, you know, in the preseason and in the, in the start of the season is, is what does this mean? I mean, we hardly even said, what does this mean from a basketball perspective? Um, I think, uh, to explain my concern about Lance Stevenson and JaVale a little bit more, I mean, I think that, um, my overriding sense watching the finals or my overriding feeling watching the finals this year was just frustration that, that LeBron is playing as well. I don't want to get into the Jordan debate, certainly playing as well as anyone I've ever seen play basketball. And the games weren't that exciting because his teammates, they don't fit with him. Um, they weren't performing. Um, and so I think this Lakers move gives him the potential to be on a team that is worthy of him um, and to get back to the level of play that we saw in those heat Spurs finals, which were, which were just tremendous basketball, like intense, you know, six, seven games, 48 minutes of intensity, great strategy, great effort. Um, and I'm really excited to see that, to see that again. Uh, and so, you know, I just, I just really hope the Lakers can surround him with players um, who can play off him and, and, and kind of give us those, those epic seven game series, uh, you know, to give the Warriors a run, to give the Rockets a run, um, and, uh, and to, to, to really kind of live up to, uh, the guys around LeBron living up to his greatness, um, is, is something I'm really hoping to see. I'll seed my time in the, in the interest of moving on, though I was entertained by DeAndre Jordan's cowboy hat emoji at 12.09 a.m. And I must praise the NBA for, for having, you know, over the last five years to 10 years, turn free agency into this great theater, this Mad Libs of sports. It really is fun and entertaining to watch, and Twitter certainly has helped feed that entertainment. And as if uh, Paul George needed a reminder about where he fits in the NBA hierarchy, I will just tell him that, Paul, I was planning on uh, focusing this segment of the podcast 
on you and the hilarity of your uh, decision uh, being announced at a concert in Oklahoma City featuring Nas, and then we just didn't we just didn't get around to it. Um, ben Mathis Lilly is a writer for Slate. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the World Cup, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I are going to come back with yet more LeBron talk. There was more that we wanted to say about marketing and about the Lakers and about the whole thing. Uh, If you want to hear that conversation, you should join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Brazil beat Mexico on Monday in Samara, Russia. The final score was dos a cero, which should tell you how I feel about the result. I'm fine with the result. Neymar had a goal and an assist. Brazil is through to the quarterfinals. So are some other teams. Russia, the host, Croatia, Uruguay, and France. We're recording this before Monday's second game, Belgium against Japan. Joining us now to talk about Brazil, Mexico, and the rest of the World Cup is Luis Miguel Echegaray. He writes about soccer for Sports Illustrated and hosts SITV's Planet Football. Hey, Luis. Hey, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Let us start with Brazil and Mexico, a not uh, unsurprising result. I think there was a lot of excitement about Mexico overperforming at this World Cup, not only because Landon Donovan had jumped on the bandwagon, How did you feel about the match, and uh, how do you feel about Mexico going out? Well, I mean, I think that in many ways, Mexican fans can be very proud of uh, what they did. Uh, Obviously, beating Germany in the opening match uh, being the highlight. Also, I think it's important to remember the context of how Mexico got to the World Cup and how they have been developing, thanks to Juan Carlos Osorio, their Colombian manager. Having said all that, I think that today was really badly managed by Mexico. Um, Brazil has um, a manager who understands when the opposition wants to intoxicate uh, Brazil. It happened literally the entire qualifying campaign when every South American nation decided that the best way to, uh, you know, attack Brazil was to, uh, you know, intoxicate them with their high press. And Mexico tried to do that. Um, And, you know, Brazil was patient. Brazil was eloquent. Brazil passed the ball nicely and just waited and waited until they pounced. The other issue was starting Rafa Marquez, a legendary Mexican player. Uh, But, you know, 39 years old. Exactly. Being a 39 year old player, also coming from not really playing that much in the last year due to his you know, issues off the field that I won't get into right now, that was, uh, you know, a big problem. And they had to, he subbed him up in the 45th minute, meaning that he already had to make a change. By the 60th minute, guys, by the 60th minute, by the hour, Mexico had already used every single substitution. I mean, both of these nations came into this tournament with a lot to prove. Brazil having something to prove in a more 
short term basis, given how they'd um, just been crushed in 2014 and Mexico just wanting to play in that mythical fifth game. It's just kind of um, amazing that they ended up matched up against each other in this round of 16 in a match that would have been really devastating for either nation to lose. But I just have to imagine that for Mexico and for Mexican fans, despite Luis, you know, mentioning them beating Germany in the first game, that just raised expectations so high, just such a young, exciting team with Chucky Lozano and um, Carlos Vela and all of their stars that this just must be pretty, pretty, I don't know if devastating is the right word, but this just seemed like the year and just for it to go like this, like how it always goes for Mexico. It's just not, not what they had imagined. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's, in many ways, beating Germany was the downfall because the expectations were so high. Everything yeah. after that was going to be an issue. And to be honest with you, you know, it wasn't so much the loss to Sweden that, uh, you know, became so detrimental, but in the manner in which they lost, which I think maybe mentally woke them up a little bit and made them realize that they weren't as hot property as they thought they were heading into the knockout stages. I will say that, um, a lot, I think that it was today specifically, or the Brazil loss specifically, was due to really not great tactics by Osorio. Over the weekend, we saw some great games and we saw some clunkers that uh, were <laughs> redeemed, at least in one case, uh, Croatia and Denmark, by a very exciting run of penalty shots at the end of, uh, of, of extra time and then in, uh, in, in penalties. But uh, the, the big takeaway, I mean, the best game probably was Argentina and France, or at least one of the most exciting games was Argentina and France. Argentina going out early, Lionel Messi going out early and being, um, I don't know, vilified is too strong, but certainly we we're all disappointed to see him go. And then people will say that he is responsible for Argentina not fulfilling its destiny. Um, this wasn't a good team, though. Uh, that was surrounded by, around Messi, and Messi certainly didn't appear to do enough to lift uh, this weaker team to salvation. And on the flip side, France looks really strong, and Kylian Mbappe, the 19-year-old who was uh, purchased for a $166 million transfer fee last year, looks like the deal. France is overwhelmingly talented in every single department. It's honestly before the Argentina game. And, you know, I'm Peruvian, so I, I, I really watched France closely in the last uh, year or at least since, you know, we knew that Peru and France were going to be matched up in Group C. But one of the things that I criticized um, France about was nothing to do with the players. It was more to do with Didier Deschamps, their manager. I always called him a man who kind of discovered a treasure of gold and just threw it into the ocean because he didn't really know how to work with his talent. And I, I got to say, I got to put my hat, my hat off to him, especially against Argentina, a really, really good game tactically. And this is where Kylian Mbappé fits in. If, you, if anybody watches the replay of this match, they will see not, it, it was not just about Mbappé's pace. That's too easy to to, to talk about when it comes to this 19-year-old. But if you watch what he was doing when France didn't have the ball, Mbappé was everywhere. He decided to move from the right wing more centrally. He wanted to make sure that Argentina's back line was completely uh, confused. And, you know, that's kind of how the first goal uh, started anyway. So France now is picking up 
not just on its rhythm and its talent, but also tactically. And that's a scary thing for everybody else. On the Argentina side, listen, guys, we have a lot, a really short memory in sports. I have to remind everybody that Argentina, in trying to qualify for the World Cup, was really struggling. And it's way beyond Sampaoli and the team. As you rightly said, it's not exactly a, a very talented squad that can support Messi. And this is not Lionel Messi's fault. This is about a federation that really didn't do enough to support its national team. Oh, I think it's I think it's a completely underreported point that Argentina's federation is so corrupt. Yeah, that exactly. It has damaged this national team. I mean, the, there were Argent, Argentine um, officials that were involved in the U.S. investigation. I mean, this has been a detriment on both sides, men and women in Argentina, and we saw it here at the World Cup. 100%. So to say that this falls on Lionel Messi is a complete joke. I don't think he even needs the World Cup to validate the fact that he's arguably one of the greatest players that has ever played the game. Uh, this was, uh, you know, a situation where, you know, they went into the lion's den without being prepared. And look what happens when you play against a team like France, who is just, you know, reaching the peak of talent and finally picking itself up tactically. Yeah. And like, as we've you know, seen this year and in World Cups past, you can have a team that's totally together um, and a superstar like Cristiano Ronaldo at the height of his powers, and you still lose in the first game of the knockout round. And so to have that extra, you know, millstone of the Federation just being in a total shambles um, is certainly not going to help. But um, the game that I found most fascinating over the weekend was Russia in Spain, which is the classic uh, tactical battle of a team, Spain, and it's kind of inimitable style, like uh, just passing the ball back and forth. A thousand and twenty nine times. I think <laughs> I think maybe they thought maybe they thought that like they would get points for completing passes. Maybe like, they thought it, was, it wasn't going to be decided by FIFA fair play points, but the number of passes completed. <laughs> and Russia just kind of bunkering in and just like hanging out and, and chilling. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah. you know, Russia gets a, a penalty on a Gerard Piquet handball, gets the penalties and, and stuff, stuff happens in penalties. But I don't know. I mean, Spain just, I don't know if it was, a, I don't think it was a question of talent. I don't think it was necessarily a question of unity. Obviously, it doesn't ho- help if your coach leaves before the tournament starts and you get a new guy coming in. But it's just didn't seem like they really wanted to like try to sc- score a goal maybe that was the sh- maybe they should have like tried to you know go towards the goal that would be my advice toward to them for the next time <laughs> yeah listen i mean absolutely all those points are extremely valid and uh, listen the first of all the biggest problem was obviously lopetegui leaving right before um you know the tournament had begun the I mean, head that, coach that's go- of the team yeah that's going to completely throw you off no matter who it is. I mean, obviously, if it's one of the things that I remember saying when when it first happened was, if it's going to happen to a team, it's good that it's with Spain because Spain has such an identity and uh, such a way of playing that it doesn't matter who comes in. So when Fernando Hierro, you know, a legendary Spanish player uh, and captain comes in, like he kind of just has to babysit in many ways, right? Um, now, the problem with the Russia match was that, as you correctly said, it was, you know, there was so much passing and everything. The problem is, is like when you play this system and um, I, I tweeted before the matches, I said, I think today the Spain-Russia match 
will be a great way to teach young players to see how to play the game. And rightly so. They play such beautiful triangular passing, tiki-taka all over the field. But the problem is that when possession doesn't turn into execution, then the, as the match goes on, frustration comes into place. And the other thing that most people don't talk about is the fact that Spain really just relies on midfielders, mm -hmm. just on midfielders. They don't have a, a, a large number of target men. It didn't help that uh, Andres Iniesta didn't come on until the 60th or so minute. Um, right. And the sense of urgency didn't even seem to begin after that. There were multiple times when when Spain was pushing forward and then they then they passed back. And it was really mind-boggling. Now, my, my one takeaway about this game is that I am so deeply cynical about Russia advancing to the quarterfinals. Um, there have been stories about doping in the uh, national soccer team. <sighs> Putin, of course, the way that Russia won the <laughs> Wait, right Putin, to host. Putin, of course. <laughs> the way that yeah. Russia won the right to host this World Cup and gain this automatic qualification through a bribe-filled election. I think it's worth pointing out that Italy in 1934 and Argentina in 1978 won the World Cup under dictatorships. They yeah. have a pretty – they could go to the semifinals. Yeah. The, uh, they're playing the Croatia. They're playing Croatia in the next game. When you play a style like Russia has been playing against superior opponents, weird things happen. Greece won the 2004 Euros. Portugal won the 2016 Euros. It is not out of the realm of possibility that Russia wins another game or two. God, isn't that scary? Oh. I mean, I like to just be, I mean, I completely agree. I, I, I just like to rely on the poetry of it all. I'm just, I'm just thinking about a seven-year-old Russian kid who's just watching his or her team and, 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 and just, like, because honestly, I can't, I can't even think about everything else that happens with that squad or their leader. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty detrimental. Their leader being Vladimir Putin, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's only one Russian leader otherwise, you know. <laughs> um, the, here's my, my last thought. Um, I'm curious for your take, uh, Luis, that VAR has changed the way that the game has been officiated, the way that the game is played. We've got a huge number of penalties that have been called. Um, and I'm curious for um, your thoughts on the, the penalty shootouts we've seen where VAR has not come into effect with goalkeepers coming off their lines. I think that that is like, that might be like a small bore question, but I, I think- is, is, is goalkeeper coming off a line even reviewable? I mean, it's not at this moment, but here, like maybe they should have taken a note from what happens in the Champions League, where you have an official literally by the by the line, mm -hmm. literally watching the goalkeeper. Maybe that make, makes it more attentive for the goalie not to leave his line. I mean, absolutely, it's been a problem, but I don't think it's ever like the, you don't see it as much in in in, in club tournaments because of this. Uh, you know, the, especially with UEFA, because you have that ref like literally right by the goal, and his. Or her job is literally just to make sure the goalkeeper stays on the line. So, you know, listen, VAR, I think that, you know, anything that's new is going to come under scrutiny. And I think that even in penalty shootouts, it's been obviously an issue. But I think when you look at the overall, uh, you know, spectrum of everything, I think it's it's been successful. And I think everything needs to be plummeted and, and diluted enough to become, you know, the, the good machine that it is. But I, I do agree something has to be 
rectified when it comes because the, I'm thinking we're going to see a few more penalty shootouts and this keeper will probably end up by the halfway line by the time we finish. <laughs> well, I, I should clarify. I'm not actually sure that I would want that to be reviewable. It just seems like you get on this train where once you start reviewing one thing, it's just like illogical that you're not, you're not reviewing, reviewing other else, things. Yeah. And penalty shootouts, if the the keeper just operates by the letter of the law and doesn't move before the ball is kicked and doesn't come off his line, you're like, have no chance. And so if you actually have a system whereby you force people to follow the letter of the law, it totally changes how the game is played. I'm wondering what cameras they use in that VAR room. Maybe there isn't a camera that specifically focuses. But yeah, it's worth talking about. It's worth mentioning for sure. Going forward, chaos is certain to continue both with VAR and with the tournament itself. The right side of the bracket, there's six teams left. They've won a combined one World Cup. That was in England in 1966 and two continental titles, Colombia and the Soviet Union. So I don't know, the Soviet Union, does that, do they even count as Russia? The five countries left on the left side of the bracket have won eight World Cups. So we could actually be seeing a new team, a team that's never made it to the finals of a World Cup, which doesn't happen. You know, the weirdest World Cup that we've had is was Turkey and South Korea making it to the semifinals back in 2002. Otherwise, it's pretty much chalk, and, and, and this year is looking like, at least on one side, it's not going to be. If there ever was a time for England to make it to the World Cup final, yeah. it is right now. And uh, I'm, uh, there is no, in many ways, there are no excuses. In many ways, there are a million. But to be honest, this is it. This is it for England. Uh, this is the best moment. They have the talent. They have the squad. And uh, I really would be, you know, if you're an England fan, you should expect nothing less than at least reaching the final with this tournament. But again, it's given us so many surprises. Who knows, right? Luis Miguel Echegaray writes about soccer for Sports Illustrated. He's the host of SITV's Planet Football. Luis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. You said my name beautifully. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last week, Luke Heimlich of Oregon State pitched his final game as an amateur athlete, taking the loss in Game 1 of the College World Series. Heimlich was one of the best players in college baseball the last two years, but he was not one of the 1,214 players selected in Major League Baseball's draft this spring. That's because six years ago, at age 16, Luke Heimlich pleaded guilty to felony sexual assault of his six-year-old niece. Here to help us better understand the legal, ethical, and professional implications of this case is Emily Bazelon. She is a panelist on Slate's Political Gab Fest, a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and a fellow at Yale Law School. Hey, Emily. Hey, Stefan and Josh. The takes in the sports media have mostly been about whether Luke Heimlich deserves a second chance or whether he would be too much of a distraction for a team or whether the nature of his crime should be totally disqualifying for a career in sports. These sorts of questions tend to elide a nuanced examination of juvenile sexual assault. 
the commission and adjudication of which is not always very black and white. But So before we get to Heimlich and baseball, what do we need to know about this type of crime and the law to better understand the situation in a broader sense? Yeah, that's a really good place to start. Um, so juvenile sex offenders are obviously like a category. There are children and teenagers who commit sex offenses. And when we started paying more attention to sexual assault in general, the first kind of move was to treat juvenile sex offenders like adults and also to make a lot of um, what have turned out to be kind of wildly exaggerated claims about the likelihood that they're going to re-offend. So, you know, sort of a natural reaction. Most of the world and certainly the country had tended to ignore or minimize sex offenses in a way that was harmful to a lot of mostly girls and women, although I should say lots of men are also victims of sexual assault. That was a problem. And so when the pendulum swung toward recognizing that problem, it was often exaggerated and kind of treated as a moral panic. Since then, I think what um, you know experts have learned about juvenile sex offenses is that most kids don't reoffend, and kids who only commit one offense, especially at a relatively young age, are very unlikely to reoffend once they go for I think it's like about five years without a second offense, and if they complete their treatment programs and abide by whatever um, you know conditions um, are set forth when they are found guilty. Um, so that's a sort of context here. Um, and I think, you know, one thing to that this case also should make us think about is the issue of um, sex offender registries. There are a number of states that treat juveniles the same as adults and, you know, can require things like lifetime registry on, um, on a sex offender registry for someone who committed an offense at a young age. And I think that's a very questionable practice from the point of view of, you know, our usual tradition is to treat kids who commit crimes differently and to seal their records. And it is to give them a second chance, at least in the legal realm. So there are ways in which the, um, you know, intense concern, while legitimate about sex offenses, has led, I think, to a kind of overreaction that can sweep up a lot of kids. All right. So that's great context. Let's give a little bit more background on this case in particular. Um, Stefan, you mentioned that he pleaded guilty when he was 16 years old, which was at this six point years six ago. years ago. Um, and he pleaded guilty to one act of sexual molestation committed when he was 15 and when the girl was six. And that as part of that plea, an additional charge that came when both parties were younger was dropped I think uh, a year younger. The, the girl was four. Heimlich wrote, um, I, I believe it was a handwritten letter confessing to what he had done at that time. Um, and uh, it was not known publicly that any of this had happened until last year when a reporter for the Oregonian who was following the precept that his editor had taught him, which was if you're doing a profile of someone, look in public records to see if anything comes up, found that Heimlich was a registered sex offender. And the reason that this showed up was that Heimlich was playing college baseball in Oregon, had grown up in Washington State, and when he had moved to Oregon, there was an allegation that I think turned out to be erroneous 
that he had failed to report as a sex offender. But because he was not actually a resident of Oregon, he was not supposed to have registered. But anyway, the authorities in Oregon claimed that he had failed to register. That kicked up a notification that um, you know he had violated these terms and that made it accessible to reporters. And so this reporter got the file, wrote a story about it in 2017. Heimlich at that time, I believe, did not deny that he had done it, walked away from the Oregon State baseball team at the end of the year. Um, but then this year has um, gone on a bit of like a publicity tour, telling Sports Illustrated, our friend Scott Price wrote a feature telling other writers that he did not do this. New York Times, yeah. That he did not do this, that he confessed at the time because he didn't want his niece, who was the victim, to have to testify in a court proceeding because he thought it would be sealed and it would never come out. Um, and, and because he was advised that the potential to be tried as an adult could lead to a substantial jail term. And so that is my next, that that was a lot of, of background explanation, but I think it's important to know all the facts here. That's my next question for you, Emily, is that the fact that he now denies ever having done this means that he is ever, either a liar, which means that we should th think much worse of him, or that he confessed falsely and that perhaps we should have great sympathy for him. And that makes this story even more complicated to think through. And, and it sounds like that's not unusual in these kinds of cases, Emily. Right. Yeah, this is the part of the story that was like the hardest for me to grapple with and to know what to think about it. So it is true that people plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit. It doesn't happen frequently, but it happens in this kind of situation where there is a very long potential sentence hanging over someone's head and the consequences of a guilty plea can be minimized at the time. And I think there's something, um, one additional fact, Josh, is that if I understand this correctly, Heimlich was two months away from having this wiped off the registry because the law in Washington state was that you stay on the registry for five years. He was almost done. And so if whatever went wrong in terms of his not registering in Oregon and the Oregon authorities misunderstanding that, if that hadn't happened, none of us would know about any of this. And I would argue that, you know, that was, that's, that's a good outcome. Like Washington state's rule of having a five-year term on the registry seems long enough to me for someone who doesn't commit another infraction who also successfully completes his diversion program. However, this whole question of whether he falsely pled guilty um, and did all this treatment and, you know, took responsibility and wrote a letter, but in fact did nothing wrong, I have no idea what to make of that. Yeah. Um, it seems, right, like it's just impossible to know the truth of that. Um, part of me is suspicious of him and feel like I what he's doing now is going to be difficult for the victim and her mother. And obviously there's this um, deeply divisive, very sad family dispute that's churning up here, right? Because the victim's mother who divorced um, one of Heimlich's brothers is incredibly upset. You can tell from her quotes to the press, she feels betrayed and let down by college and professional sports and also by the family. And apparently Heimlich and his brother don't really speak. So 
whatever happened here in terms of this accusation and how valid it was, it it just seems like a terrible um, situation within the family that's kind of spilling out into um, the public domain in a way that's it cannot be good for the victim to have Heimlich now denying that these things happened. Um, on the other hand, if he really didn't commit the crime, you can understand why at this point when it's public, he doesn't want to be associated with it. And I just like, I don't know how we're supposed to know what to make of that. Well, Stefan, I mean, it's hard enough to think about if we stipulated that Heimlich did this and then it's a hard enough conversation around should he play Major League Baseball and should a team sign him um, if he did this horrible thing but has served served his time. Um, now, the way that I was framing it like I did before is that like you can't – we can't have that conversation about him anymore because he's either, based on what he's claiming, like, you know, confessed to something he didn't do or he's like – a horrible liar that no team should should ever touch. And I just don't understand how we'll get to the Kansas City Royals in a second. I don't think a team a, a sports franchise is in any way equipped to make that kind of judgment. No, it's not. And by the same token, Luke Heimlich is not barred from trying to gain employment at something that he's really good at. Um and and this is where sports becomes problematic that it, that he's an athlete and not something else. And we didn't say this guy is a really good pitcher. He's really good. <laughs> he would have been a, a you know probably a first round or maybe high second round pick had this not come out. Um, so we have this overlay of it doesn't matter that this guy is a public figure that he's playing sports. Does that complicate it? I mean, I think that you know, going back to what you said, Josh and Emily, about about how his um, denial complicates the issue. I think he's probably been getting some terrible advice, is what mm-hmm. it sounds like. Whether yeah. it's from a, an agent or a consultant or a lawyer. I mean, Emily, correct me if I'm wrong, but he could have just said nothing. He could have said that the legal process is playing itself out. Yes, this is what happened five years ago. Um, I've been complied, complied with every requirement that's been made of me by the legal system. I'm sorry for the way all of this has become public, um, and I'll have no further comment. And I don't know whether that would have helped or hindered his future and his career as a baseball player, but it was certainly within his rights as a felon to do that. Right. It would have been cleaner for those of us who are trying to talk about this. But look, I mean, from his point of view, he's reacting to the stigma of a sex offense. I mean, the allegations are, you know, about him touching a girl when she was between the ages of four and six. That's like a hard thing for people to get their minds passed. And it's led to all of this pressure on major league teams not to draft him. So, you can understand. I mean, I appreciate why you think like it was a bad idea. And I, I'm wrestling with it because there is something, um, given the sensibilities of the victim and that he did plead guilty to Mm -hmm. come back now without any proof and say, I didn't do this after all. There's something I, I find that hard. 
But you can understand why he doesn't want to be associated with that stigma if he didn't do it. But also, frankly, if he did do it, there's a lot of incentive to try to back away from those kinds of allegations once they're public. Yeah, and not to be crass, but I think all you have to do is just look at um, a long history of evidence in pro sports that if he had um, a beaten an adult woman or if he had even been accused of sexually assaulting an adult woman, I think a team would have drafted him. Um, there is something there, you know, child molestation is categorically different um, in terms of how it's perceived, maybe rightly so. I think, Emily, you presented, um, uh, you know, some really important context there in your first comment. But I think no matter how you feel about it, I think it's undeniable that that's true. Um, And I also think, you know, the one thing as I've been thinking about this that I am convinced by is that there is an enormous power imbalance in how this story has been told in that Heimlich is, quote unquote, interesting because He is a star athlete and this extremely unusual situation um, where he, you know, he did this thing or, you know, now he says he did not do this thing. But that is something the journalists are going to want to write about. And he has, you know, talked to Scott Price. He's talked to the New York Times and the profiles are consequently focused on him. And the only person who is speaking for the victim in these stories is her mother, who is anonymous to protect the child's identity. And pretty much, you know, everybody else around the victim is not talking. But you have all these like character witnesses for Heimlich saying, you know, the Oregon State baseball coach, oh, he's a good dude, you know, and and other people at the school or, you know, seem to have like taken his side. And he might be a good dude. I'm just saying is that just by the nature of the offense and the accusation and the media strategy, I think that Heimlich has undertaken, these stories are just not balanced. And right. I think it's fundamentally unfair and there's not really any anything to do about it except just acknowledge it. Right. Well, and and the, the, the one aspect of Heimlich turning pro that falls into that argument, Josh, is that the fact that he is a professional baseball player will keep him in the public limelight for many, many years if he's successful and by, as a consequence, keep this crime in the public limelight for many, many years. And as this girl who is now, what, I guess 12, um, mm-hmm. grows older and grows into adulthood, this will be there. This will be an identifying factor in her life. Right. I mean, Josh, some of the really good points you were making, Jessica Luther wrote a strong piece about, um, which I recommend to people. I'm a fan of hers in general. Um, I mean, I'm torn about this. On the one hand, and I think this is, to me, the principle that counts the most, I think it's like deeply essential that people who commit crimes as juveniles can move on with their lives. Like that, you know, when all of the science about the adolescent brain and people's um, more impulsive responses when they're younger and the kind of, you know, deep-seated principle that we view culpability differently among juveniles, that all weighs very heavily in my mind. And I think 
sex offenders, juvenile sex offenders should be in that category. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have, you know, special ways of watching out for people who have a repeated pattern who seem like they're likely to be dangerous in the future. And I think that our laws at this point, like, do tend in that direction and are doing quite a bit to protect us. But I also think there's a problem of not letting people um, have their records erased when there are people, and I think Heimlich falls into this category. Let's let's uh, imagine for a moment he did commit this crime. He completed the treatment successfully and has not been accused of anything since then. He was 15 at the time of the allegations, and that suggests that he's in a category of very, very low risk of reoffending. So in terms of his legal liability, I would like to see him as someone who could go on with his life. But playing... Um, being in a very visible role as a um, you know professional athlete, that's a privilege, not a right. Uh, we mentioned that nobody has drafted Luke Heimlich. He was eligible to be drafted last year after this became public. And again, this year, 1,200 players last year, 1,200 players this year, nobody picked him. But the Kansas City Royals general manager, a guy named Dayton Moore, came out last week and said that the team was considering signing Heimlich. And this has triggered, obviously, a lot of conversation about whether it's appropriate and it sort of it, it coalesces these arguments because now it's real that he may get a job in baseball. I don't think the Royals have handled this particularly well. I mean, Dayton Moore is known as a guy with a big heart. He talks a lot about his religious convictions, about the importance for second chances. But this really clarifies just where sports executives aren't equipped to understand or present to the public the pro or con arguments for taking a step like this with a player who's in a situation like Luke Heimlich. Yeah, I mean, one of the examples of him not handling it well is analogizing it to a player from the Royals, Jared Dyson, who um, was suspended because of a performance-enhancing drug offense and acting like these were somehow the same thing, which evinces a kind of lack of intellectual rigor, perhaps, on the part of Dayton Moore and the fact that he puts this in like an explicitly Christian context. And I believe he banned his players from watching pornography. He held a a session for players talking about the evils of pornography. It's also important, I think, to also mention that he got some facts wrong. He said that the Heimlich family is close and that was helping him to, to feel as if that that this is something that you know that that weighed in Luke Heimlich's favor. All right. Well, I want to broaden this out for a second, and then um, maybe bring it back to the Royals. But I think that this has played out um, appropriately in like a global sense, and by that I mean, you know, baseball should not prohibit teams from drafting this guy. They should not prohibit teams from signing him as an undrafted free agent, and I have felt that way about the NFL. I don't think the NFL should be in business running its own criminal justice system, which it effectively has done in many cases over the years. I think it should be left up to individual teams to make these choices. And so I'm glad in one sense that um, this is falling on the Royals, both to decide whether this is something they want to do and to be rather public about that decision. Like the thing that bothers me as when a t- you know historically teams in the past have um, you know signed a guy with uh, domestic abuse 
history and basically just refused to answer any questions and has not been transparent and has not allowed people in their community or or wherever else to respond or, you know, to force them to kind of answer questions about their thought process. And so, you know, Emily, I don't know if you have any specific thoughts on on the Royals or on sports leagues in general, but I think it's a good thing that we've heard Dayton Moore kind of articulate his thinking and so we can form opinions about it and that the Royals, if if they want to give this guy an opportunity, then I think that's fine and I think they should just answer questions about what their thinking was. Yeah, well, I'm going to partly defend Dayton Moore in the sense that an important part of rethinking our criminal justice system is this whole idea of second chances and making space for people to redeem themselves and move on with their lives. So one phrase you hear a lot from criminal justice reform advocates is when the debt is paid, it's paid. In other words, when you've served your sentence, you should be able to have the rest of your life. And I think that principle is crucial in a broader sense and that it's actually really helpful to have evangelicals or other religious people sign onto it and even frame it in religious terms because it it does have a spiritual component to it for a lot of people. The other point you raised about, you know, professional sports and a kind of their efforts to effectively like adjudicate criminal justice allegations, it's really tricky. I mean, in cases like this, I think what we're really talking about are how do people who've been accused of sex crimes come back, right? And this is something I've been thinking about a lot in the wake of the Me Too movement. It's really important for us to be able to judge collectively outside the court of law to have public opinion judgments against men, because we're talking about men, who do troubling things, you know, whether it's a sex offense or sexual harassment, like we're in this moment of awareness. And I think some of the um, social ostracism or ways in which people's professional opportunities are limited after they've been, you know, found to have done some gross thing, like that is important. It is also important to figure out a way to have a kind of gradated set of judgments we make in which everybody doesn't lose their professional capacities for the rest of their lives, right? I mean, if we're saying Luke Heimlich can't be drafted, what we're really saying is like he can't pursue his trade and his professional opportunities because of the message that sends. And so in the end, Josh, I mean, I'm with you because this was a juvenile offense, I think that Um, it is fine for him to be drafted. And I also think you're right. It would be really helpful if teams would talk about their thought processes in a way that's fully informed and helps like educate and the public and helps us all kind of think through these tricky issues. And I know, you know, a lot of feminists have had this initial resistance to worrying about men who face accusations like this and an understandable sense of, wait a minute, we really should be thinking about these questions through the lens of the victims. It's been victims who've been ignored for so long. And we've seen a kind of uprising on behalf of victims. And a lot of that is warranted. But at the same time, when we're imposing punishments, whether they're legal punishments or court of public opinion punishments, as I was saying before, unless we're comfortable with like a life sentence for every single person, we do have to think about what happens to the men afterward. The piece that I think is important to follow up, though, on Emily is finding a way to ensure that organizations like the Kansas City Royals or any other sports team or any other public facing um, group 
find a way to do that in a mature and informed way to not just to not just say you know to utter these platitudes that that you know that he's a good guy and we've looked into his past in the last four or five years he's been a model citizen and a model student but to truly educate the public through its pronouncements and i think that what often goes unremarked is how the, the where sports organizations fail is that they don't do enough homework and they don't bring a, a balanced argument to their presentation they're trying to win an argument they're trying to justify doing something rather than informing the public and saying that, look, this is an incredibly complex set of determinations we've been forced to make here. And here's how we made them. But here's also what else you need to think about. Right. And they have really low credibility because of the way they've handled you know, domestic violence complaints in the past. And also because they have such a strong self-interest here. Of course, they want to let players of the caliber of Luke Heimlich off the hook for their past misconduct because they want to be able to utilize them on the field. And so I think you're absolutely right. Like Because there are reasons to be suspicious. They need to be like extra careful. And instead we see them being under careful as we saw with, um, you know, Dean Moore saying the Heimlich family is close. The Heimlich family is deeply divided. Yeah. And the irony here is that the people in sports who seem to be thinking really deeply about these issues and about what we should do about the criminal justice system our players in the NFL, right, Emily? Like right, 100%. People like, Ma- people like Malcolm Jenkins and, you know, these are, and, and the notion that the people running these franchises and making these decisions just feel like, you know, basically it's not really their job or don't seem to have, uh, for whatever reason, put in the time to really understand this stuff in a deep way is like fairly telling. Yes. I completely agree. And look, it's been a a very male-dominated, not particularly feminist universe for such a long time that, you know, it's hard not to, like, just roll one's eyes when they continue to sort of be flat-footed, even if, in the end, you know, the question of, like, the the yes or no question of should a team be able to draft Luke Heimlich is – one thing. And then there are these more interesting questions about how we talk and think about this and process it that you're raising, which are deeply important. Emily Bazelon is a panelist on Slate's Political Gab Fest. She writes for the New York Times Magazine. She's a fellow at Yale Law School. Emily, thanks so much for coming on the show. You are very welcome. It was great to talk with you guys. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now it is time for After Balls. And in our first segment, I mentioned that the real loser of this NBA free agency weekend from a hang up and listen coverage perspective is Paul George. I was all like, I was like pretty excited to talk about the hilarity of how the Paul George Oklahoma City re-signing played out on Twitter. And I think like the whole media ecosystem around NBA free agency deadline is really interesting. The thing that I found most interesting, Stefan, is that there are like always always these rumors around, 
you know, reading the tea leaves about this person says sources, you know, this, this guy's like friends dog walker says this. And it turned out that the Paul, like all of the like weird, crazy, like Paul George rumor mongering was totally true. That like this barber in Oklahoma City who tweets as scissor hands OKC was like telling people like, eh, there's going to be good news about Paul George. Totally correct. Oh, there are like rumors. about Good news. He's changing his hairstyle. <laughs> rumors that like Russell Westbrook's going to be hosting this big party and Nas is going to be there. It's like sounds like this like high school rumor. That was actually totally true, too. And Paul George announces on stage that he's staying in Oklahoma City. Twitter rumors about NBA free agency, always true. Truth. Um, so, Stefan, what is your scissor hands OKC? Well, 50 years ago this week, Pele and his Brazilian club Santos beat the Boston Beacons of the fledgling North American Soccer League. The game was played at Fenway Park. 18,000 fans showed up, the biggest soccer crowd ever in New England. The final score was 7-1. to one. And guess who covered the game for the Boston Globe? Peter Gammons. A young Peter Gammons. The Brazilians were everything they were built up to be and had no trouble toying with the outclassed beacons, Gammons wrote, who put up a good effort in the first half before being completely overwhelmed. The game was the seventh straight victory for Santos during a summer tour of the United States, during which Pele was treated at once as an international sports celebrity and kind of a boardwalk curiosity. When Santos played the Washington Whips, Washington sports columnist Shirley Povich called Pele Superman, noted that the crowd of 20,000 was the biggest ever in D.C. for soccer and certainly the biggest crowd ever attracted by a mononym until Madonna. Uh, a Boston Globe columnist named Bob Sales wrote that watching Pele play soccer is like listening to James Brown sing. He can be watched and appreciated, but he's hard to dig unless you have the proper background. Hmm. Uh, sales said that Pele had scored in every one of Santos's 43 games that year, which seems unlikely, but whatever. As far as I can tell, Santos and Pele played 15 to 20 games on this U.S. tour, including a brutal five in eight days. One exhibition was canceled because Pele was hurt and there was no point in playing without him. It was the fourth straight summer that Santos and Pele had toured America, which I did not know, and which helps explain why a few years later, at the end of his career, Pele decided to leave Brazil and come and play for the New York Cosmos, where I watched him more than once in Giants Stadium. Apart from Peter Gammons, Cub soccer reporter, here are a few other things I learned about Pele and his U.S. tour. European teams visited the United States in the 1960s, just as they do now. They played to immigrant audiences, largely. Santos played Napoli a few times, including in front of a New York soccer record 43,000 at Yankee Stadium. They played River Plate of Argentina in Los Angeles, and they played a bunch of NASL teams. Manchester City lost twice to the Atlanta Chiefs and once to the Oakland Clippers. Oakland Clippers, 2018 Premier League champions. Santos did not go unbeaten on this grueling tour. They lost 2-1 to one to the Cleveland Stokers in front of 16,000 at Municipal Stadium. The ref disallowed a last-minute tying goal. Santos walked off the field in protest. Pele and his teammates hacked mercilessly during this tour. They're bloody animals, one Brazilian player said after the Cleveland game. 
But on the other side, coaches bitched about Pele getting all the calls. Free kick, free kick, free kick. That's all the referee could call for them. We'd touch them and the whistle would blow, but our boys would get knocked down and the whistle would be silent. Pele is the god of soccer and the referee let him play like one. Those were the words of St. Louis Stars coach Rudy Gutendorf after his team lost 3-2. to two. Go Google Rudy Gutendorf. He has to have the longest coaching resume of anyone ever. 39 teams over 49 years from 1955 to 2003. The man deserves his own afterball. Very few Americans, unsurprisingly, played for NASL teams. But I didn't realize some facts about the European and Latin American migration. Um, the Boston team was like half Danish, including former national team players. You know why the Cleveland team was known as the Stokers, Josh? Uh, I don't know. Why? Because it was actually Stoke City of England's first division at the time getting some summer training. Like the whole team played over here on other teams from Latin America and Europe basically were imported to fill out rosters to be these teams. Stoke had played the previous season, 1967, in something called the United Soccer Association. Everybody was obsessed with Pele's salary. See the world's highest paid athlete, $341,000 per year tax-free, read the ad in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch promoting the game against Santos. Tickets were five, four, and $2. <laughs> it's really funny that they promoted that he didn't have to pay taxes. Yeah, tax-free. I want to go see a guy who doesn't pay taxes. It's a big attraction. Not everyone in the media understood soccer, Josh. Santos won the World Cup in 1958 and again in 1962, the AP said in a dispatch. And finally, soccer was the sport of the future. We will succeed through the youth in America, the St. Louis team owner said. One of the owners of the New York Generals, who played Real Madrid that summer, gave a different reason. The deaths in high school football, which make a lot of people hesitate about letting their sons go out for it. 50 years later, some of these things are coming true. Prophetic. Josh, what's your scissor hands OKC? So over the weekend on Sunday, we had two penalty um, shootouts to decide. World Cup round of 16 games. Russia beat Spain 4-3 to three, um, on penalties. And Croatia beat Denmark 3-2. to two. I think, obviously, the Croatia-Denmark shootout was... Um, more dramatic. You had a lot of saves. You had, um, in both shootouts, actually, keepers making saves with their feet while diving in the opposite direction, which I think, I hope you would agree, is the coolest genre of penalty kick save. So the, the last Russia save was diving foot deflection. It's awesome. I love that kind yeah. of save. Um, but I have a persistent beef with the penalty shootout. A lot of people criticize it because, oh, you're playing 11 on 11 the whole game and then you like give up and play an entirely different sport. You know, you got to decide the game somehow. somehow, Um, There's a a huge amount of drama and like psychological torture that goes into that. And who doesn't love drama and psychological torture? So I don't have any problem with the penalty shootout, qua penalty shootout. The issue I have, and I wrote about this in 2014, is the way that they're broadcast because when um, we see the penalty, uh, the penalties in real time uh, on television, they shoot it from the same camera, camera one, that they shoot the entire game from, which is from the side, which is obviously the best way to see the full vista of a soccer field during the normal run of play. But during penalties, I think we've all had the experience 
pretty much on every single kick just because of the vantage point. If you have no fucking clue if the ball went in the net or if it missed, you don't know how much it missed by. If it goes off the post, you don't know if the, you know, how much the keeper tipped it. It's just a really bad way to look at penalties. And I, when I wrote about this in 2014, I spoke to um, a director. ESPN had the rights back then, somebody who's broadcast soccer games and the explanation, and it still continues even though Fox is broadcasting the games now, is that they have no control over how the game is shown. They don't control the the camera angles that's done. Um, there's a world feed and it's sent out to you know, Fox and broadcasters around the world. And so they can't, um, you know, decide what is shown in live action or replays. But the ESPN um, director that I talked to back then said that if it was up to him, he would shoot the penalties um, from behind. And you can look on YouTube at examples of this. And it's amazing. And, you know, obviously it's not the way you're used to seeing a soccer game live. We're certainly used to seeing the replays, but it's like, you obviously know what's going on. A guy is running forward and kicking a ball. It's not confusing. Um, and you can see very clearly, instantly, whether the ball goes in. You can see instantly whether the keeper um, tips it away, whether how it goes off the crossbar, whether it goes off the post. It's amazing. And if you watch this on YouTube, if you watch an example of this, then you'll instantly be converted, I think. And so the explanation for why it's not shown that way is just basically tradition. And that this is the way that it's always been done. But we've seen in soccer with VAR that the game is, you know, changing, you know, technology is obviously having an effect on on the game. And I think, you know, I don't know what you think, Stefan. Do you think it's plausible that we'll see penalties from uh, the behind the taker vantage point at any time, you know, in the next few years, the next World Cup? I would hope so. I mean, I guess the question is camera placement. I mean, you see that angle on replays. The question is, why aren't they using it as the number one choice for the live shot? Yeah, I mean, the explanation that I got was basically this is how it's been done. And, you know, it's there are examples of kind of forward thinking directors, whether it was an MLS games or in Champions League games, actually changing that vantage and doing a different kind of live shot. But the you know number one example that you could point to is that back in the day, Mister A Few Seconds of Panic, they used to show field goals from the typical mm-hmm. vantage of uh, how you'd normally see a football game, and they changed it. And now we see field goals from behind, and you can actually see if the ball goes through the uprights. Anyone who's seen a f- football game live will know that if you're watching from the sideline, it is incredibly hard to tell whether a field goal goes through the uprights. And so that is one advantage you have as a TV viewer. And now we would think it's insane to show a field goal from the side. And so just once it's changed, it'll be changed for good. It just needs to happen. They also need to mic up the goalie and the taker so that we can hear the trash talk. Before that would be kick. good. That, that would be, be good awesome. too. So yeah, in whatever penal- language. Penalty shootouts. Simultaneous translation of <laughs> trash talk by goalie. I think we basically just solved penalty shootouts and in, in an after all. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Our intern is Meredith Ellison. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.